This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Almaka's worship spanned the Red Sea, and magnificent temples adorned with his symbols, the bull's head and grapevine, stood in the early Iron Age kingdoms of Damat and Saba. On the African shore, the people of Damat built a temple complex in their capital of Yeha in honor of the moon god. On the Arabian side, the Sabaean king, Yada'il Dara I, built a temple to Almaka near his royal capital of Sirwa. When he moved their capital to the Marib oasis, along the vital South Arabian incense route, the king built a new temple to Almaka just outside the city. The Sabaeans considered themselves the moon god's children and pictured his divine form as a cluster of lightning bolts around a curved blade. This period between the 8th and 5th centuries BC was the heyday of the Sabaeans. They're commonly associated with the Queen of Sheba, who brought a caravan of gifts and some pretty tough questions to the Israelite King Solomon. And while it's a pretty interesting story, the 10th century time frame doesn't really work. The Sabaeans weren't yet an established power, and as I mentioned before, there's no real proof of Solomon's existence apart from the biblical sources. But even if the story was written much later, it got a few things right. Southern Arabia was fantastically wealthy, and many Arab tribes did have powerful queens. The Sabaeans could be more accurately described as the foremost among a cluster of kingdoms in modern southwest Yemen. The Sabaeans mainly derived their wealth from a lucrative trade in frankincense and myrrh, exported to Syria and Mesopotamia by caravan and to Egypt and India by sea. Sabaean incense was highly prized in major cities across the region, including Babylon, Memphis, and the Phoenician cities of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre. One of the main trade routes, 
between the Sabean capital of Marib and the port of Gaza, stretched for 1,200 miles, and took over two months to travel each way. And by the way, for those like me who aren't too familiar, frankincense and myrrh are aromatic resins extracted from trees that are used in incense and perfumes. Apart from just helping people and things smell better, they were also commonly used in temples and sacred rituals. Both Southwest Arabia and Ethiopia were important sources for both these commodities, which is why the Sabaeans maintained a strong influence in the African kingdom of Damat. Due to the limited archaeology performed, many aspects of Sabaean culture remain a mystery. Some of their cities were made of stone and fortified by walls, while other regions used mud bricks. The local climate demanded the extensive use of wells and cisterns, which were tied into canals for irrigation. An early dam in the city of Marib, built by the 8th century BC Sabaean king Yatha Amar Wata I, was designed to channel seasonal floodwaters to the low-lying farms of the valley. Temples were generally open to the sky and featured undecorated square or rectangular obelisks. It's not known whether they contain images of Almaka or the other Arabian gods. Among the most remarkable Sabaean artifacts are sculptures and reliefs of individuals, often made of limestone, alabaster, marble, or bronze. The works are characterized by a lifelike rendering of facial features atop an often simplified human form, with little regard to proportion. Figures directly face the viewer, with the eyes made of colored materials that make a striking impression. Scenes depicted on Sabaean reliefs include banquets, battles, and musical performances. The Sabaeans' neighbors in southwest Yemen included the kingdoms of Ma'in, Kataban, Hajramat, Ausan, and Himyar. And I've included some maps on the Facebook page to help keep everything straight. While the kingdoms generally cooperated in the incense trade, they also jockeyed for local power as whichever kingdom was temporarily ascendant would tax the other's trade goods. The dominant ruler took the title of Mukarib, or Federator, above the other kings. This role allowed him to commission building projects and preside over hunts and religious rituals, including local pilgrimages. The latter may have provided the Mukarib with a ready source of suitable candidates to be pressed into military service. Sabaean rulers were also skilled in international diplomacy. A Mukarib named Karibi Ilu is known to have sent gold, silver, gems, and incense to the powerful king Sennacherib of Neo-Assyria, probably to avoid the fate of his neighbors. For the past half-century, northern Arabia had been the land of the Kedarites, a tribal confederation ruled by a series of queens. Most Sabaean caravan routes passed through Kedarite territory, making them very active partners in the southern incense trade. It also put them just a bit too close to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. 
After Tiglath-Pileser III defeated the Kedarite queen Shamshi in 734 BC, he'd quickly placed her back on the throne as a Neo-Assyrian vassal. The arrangement had lasted until Sennacherib's reign. When the Assyrians marched south, conquered the Kedarite capital of Adumatu, and dragged their current queen, Te'elhunu, off to Nineveh in chains. After the Neo-Assyrian conquest, it's uncertain whether the Sabaeans continued to deal with Kedarite rulers or dealt with the Assyrians directly. Either way, the lucrative trade continued to fuel their rise. It was the Sabaean Mukarib Yada-il-Dara I, the son of Karibi Elu, who'd sent the gifts to Sennacherib, who'd built the temples to the moon god Almaka that we discussed a few minutes back. Toward the end of the 7th century BC, the Sabaean Mukarib Karib-il-Watar II was the first ruler to take the title of Malik, asserting a more formal kingship across the whole region. He also left a number of inscriptions recording his many building projects. But the longest inscription, at the Temple of Almaka at Sirwa, describes his military campaigns. Karibil Watar II first led his army against the local kingdom of Asan, burning cities, killing and enslaving thousands, and seizing several southern ports. He then marched against the kingdom of Ma'in, finally capturing its capital of Nashak after a brutal three-year siege. In victory, he took control of Menean dams, irrigation canals, and agricultural lands, and demanded the payment of tribute. In a later campaign against the city of Najran, the Malik supposedly killed 5,000 adults, enslaved 12,000 children, and seized over 200,000 cattle. His conquests earned Karib il Watar II the epithets he who destroys buildings, and he who carries out the will of El, with El equated to Almaka. In the centuries after Karib-il-Watar II, details from the region are a bit more scarce, and we're left with broader sketches. While the surrounding lands of Mesopotamia and Egypt fell under control of the Persian Empire, the Sabaeans strove to maintain their preeminence and control of caravan routes. Eventually, some kingdoms, like Kataban and Hadramaut, freed themselves from Sabaean control and began to chart their own path. At around the same time, North Arabian Qadarite territories, along with their trade routes, were subsumed by the growing power of the Nabataeans. According to Strabo, in the late 4th century BC, Alexander the Great had every intention of adding Arabia to his list of conquests, and had already prepared fleets and bases of operations, likely in the North Persian Gulf. He died before the campaign was launched, and the fleets he'd prepared ended up being used in the ensuing wars of succession. And finally, when things settled down, the Seleucids came out on top, at least in Syria and Mesopotamia. In 206 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus the Great 
fresh from conquests in Central Asia, sailed from Antioch and Persis across the Persian Gulf to the Arabian city of Gera. Gera was tied into the trade of incense from the Sabaean south, as well as Indian goods. Antiochus's intention was to convince the Garans to funnel their trade through Seleucid ports in Mesopotamia rather than Egyptian ports controlled by the rival Ptolemies. According to historian Andreas Parpas, Antiochus crossed the gulf in 130 ships, carrying 10,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. His visit had the salutary result, and Antiochus the Great left the region with an understanding, one that persisted at least through the reign of his son Antiochus IV. Around a century later, in 110 BC, the Himyarites of southern Arabia broke free from the rule of Kataban and began their rise to prominence. First, they formed an independent kingdom with its capital at Zafar, near the modern Yemeni capital of Sana'a. Then, in 25 BC, the Himyarites directly challenged Sabaean power by capturing the former Sabaean capital of Sirwa. And at the very same time, the current Sabaean capital of Marib came under attack by a new and very dangerous people who'd recently conquered Egypt. Yes, I'm talking about the Romans. As I covered way back in Bloodline, episode B6, the Emperor Augustus had ordered his Egyptian prefect, alias Gallus, to launch a military expedition into southern Arabia. His orders were pro forma, conclude treaties with friendly tribes and crush any opposition. While the expedition was dressed up as a fact-finding venture, Augustus was really interested in getting his hands on some of Arabia's legendary wealth. Gallus's expedition to southern Arabia was an absolute unmitigated disaster. First off, he engaged a Nabataean guide named Sileus, who turned out to be, probably intentionally, completely unreliable. That, combined with the baking heat, contaminated water, poor shelter, and, above all, the ravages of unknown disease, slowly ground his legions down to a nub. After a six-month march, Gallus finally made it to the Sabaean capital of Marib and laid siege to the city. But the current Sabaean king, Ilshara Yadib, or Ilasaros, successfully resisted the assault. Before long, Gallus was forced to march his battered remnants back to Alexandria. Over a century later, during Trajan's reign, Rome returned to northern Arabia, annexing the Nabataean kingdom as a Roman province. Meanwhile, in the Egyptian city of Berenice, a Greek sailor took some time off to write a personal travelogue. Which ordinarily wouldn't be worth mentioning, but this one's kind of famous. It's known as the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea, which you can translate as the Sailing Logbook of the Arabian Sea. And yes, I know Erythrean means red, but at the time, the Erythrean Sea meant all of the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. 
In layman's terms, the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea was kind of a lonely planet guide, covering ports along the Red Sea, the Horn of Africa, southern Arabia, the Persian Gulf, and India. And as it just so happened, the Periplus included a few entries relevant to our story. At the time it was written, the Himyarites had become the dominant power in the region of southwest Arabia. The Periplus describes the rule of a contemporary king named Charibel, very likely King Karib il Watar Unahem II of Himyar. The author notes that the king, through continual embassies and gifts, is a friend of the Roman emperors, which may explain why Rome was content to stop at Nabatea. From Roman merchants calling it Musa, the king received a tribute of horses, finely woven cloth, and vessels of copper, gold, and silver, all likely in return for the standard commodities of frankincense and myrrh. In this same rough time frame, the early 2nd century AD, the Himyarite kingdom faced a few local rebellions and ended up losing control of both Saba and Kataban. While Saba resumed its independence, Kataban was quickly conquered by the kingdom of Hadramaut, whose name means either the green place or death has come. So, you know, take your pick. Hadramaut consisted of a narrow coastal plain bounded by the steep slope of a broad plateau and crossed by a scattered network of seasonal watercourses. So we're basically talking about a significant stretch of the southwest Arabian coastline. As it happens, the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea also mentions Hadramaut. After Eudaimon Arabia, modern Aden, there is a continuous length of coast and a bay extending 2,000 stadia or more, along which there are nomads and fish eaters living in villages. Just beyond the cape projecting from this bay, there is another market town by the shore, Kana, of the kingdom of Eleazus, the frankincense country. Around the time the Severans took power in Rome, the Himyarites wrested control of Kataban back from Hadramaut. A Himyarite king from this same period, named Damar Ali Yabur II, commissioned a striking pair of artistic works two larger-than-life bronze statues of himself and his son, the crown prince. An inscription documents that the parts were made separately by a Greek sculptor named Phocus, then assembled by a local craftsman. It took most of the next century before the Himyarites were ready to make a push for full unification. Around 280 AD, the Himyarite king Shamar Yarish conquered the cities of Najran and Marib, then the neighboring territory of Hadramaut. With this string of victories, all the fractious Yemeni kingdoms were brought under Himyarite rule. At roughly the same time in northern Arabia, another powerful tribal confederation was putting its stamp on the region. These were the Lachmids, under the legendary ruler Imru al-Qais, who used his formidable army and navy to conquer southern Mesopotamia and northern Arabia in the service of Sasanian Persia. 
An inscription in Imru al-Qais's tomb looks back on his many accomplishments, among which was apparently a minor conflict involving King Shamar Yarish of Himyar. The inscription records a victory over a group of Madhij, or North Arab tribes, whom Imru al-Qais drove to the gates of Najran, the city of Shamar apparently shorthand for King Shamar Yarish of Himyar. This clash likely occurred during the late 3rd century AD, and whatever the outcome, within a few decades, both Imru al-Qais and Shamar Yarish would have far more serious concerns. As I covered last episode, when Shapur II became Persian king in 325 AD, his very first act was to launch an attack on the Arabs of the Persian Gulf, which he followed up with an invasion of the Arabian Peninsula. Shapur pushed south as far as Yathrib, modern Medina, which is still some distance north of Yemen, but it's pretty likely that the Persian assault destabilized the whole region. As we discussed last episode, it also compelled Imru al-Qais to lead the Lakhmids away from the Gulf to settle in Roman Syria. This was the era of Constantine the Great, and as I noted, Imru al-Qais and his fellow Lakhmids were also Christian converts. But the Himyarites of the early 4th century still honored the gods of their fathers, including Almaka, Am, and Wad. And, not to get too obsessive with the lunar stuff, but Almaka was the Sabaean moon god, Am was the Kataban moon god, and Wad was the god of the local Manaeans, who was sometimes represented by a crescent moon with the disk of Venus. Oh, and the people of Hadramaut worshipped the Babylonian moon god Sin. So, the way I'm reading it, those desert nights under the crescent moon had a fairly heavy influence. But it's also safe to say that the monotheistic tide was slowly rising. Around this same time, a Tyrian youth named Frumentius was sailing with his uncle and brother along the coast of Ethiopia, just across the Red Sea from the Himyarite kingdom. And I'm sorry to report that the journey did not end well. According to the historian Rufinus, when the ship put in at one African port, the locals massacred all the crew and passengers except for the two young boys. The brothers ended up as slaves in the court of the local king, a man called either Ella Amida or Wasanus. The king ruled over an expansive territory in the Tigray region of modern Ethiopia, just south of the kingdom of Cush. His kingdom was called Aksum. Within a few short decades, this chance encounter would result in Aksum joining both Rome and the Lakhmids in the worship of Christianity. And a few short decades after that, in a surprising twist the Himyarites would convert to Judaism, which set the stage for a religious conflict that would eventually draw in a regional empire. Oddly enough, one that was neither Christian nor Jewish. Next episode, the interesting and convoluted story of the Aksumite Persian Wars.